There are only two people who've been CEO at a Fortune 500 company for more than 50 years. One of them is Warren Buffett. The other is Les Wexner. And Wexner actually beats out Buffett by a couple of years. Les Wexner of Columbus, Ohio. If his name doesn't ring a bell, it might be because Wexner doesn't like the limelight. He rarely gives interviews. But try this one, Victoria's Secret. There you go, that rings a bell. Yeah, that's just one of the businesses in Les Wexner's retail empire, L Brands. An empire you could say he's been building since he was 11 years old. The first business that I, I think is interesting, I was, I would do, you know, kids do babysitting. So let's say you're babysitting and you're getting paid 50 cents an hour or whatever I was getting paid then. And I figured out that if I could take 10 kids to the park on a Saturday, I could get 50 cents a kid for two hours. And so I could make $5 an hour or $10 for two hours. Babysitting one-on-one, I'd only make a dollar for two hours. So I, I looked back and I said, I understood leverage. From babysitter to billionaire bra broker, try saying that one 10 times fast, we'll tell you the all-American story of a self-made man on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for. But boy, you better not miss them. All right, let's just dispense with the elephant in the room. There is nothing particularly sexy or salacious in the story of Les Wexner's rise to become the titan of women's lingerie. He's a family guy with four kids. He's active in a synagogue in Columbus, Ohio. He is a multi-billionaire with the art collection, the houses, and the yachts to prove it. But at heart, he's a five-foot, six-inch guy from Columbus, Ohio in the Schmada business. Came from very modest circumstance. My father was born in Russia. My mother was the first child in her family born in the United States. No one had gone to college, and everybody worked hard and pretty much struggled. I felt terribly constrained just by the family circumstance and wanted to be successful, whatever that meant. I, it was you know, different. It's successful might have been when I was at high school, maybe one day I'd have a car. You know, when I got out of college, maybe one day I'd have a new car. Pretty modest goals. But they were goals that would take him beyond the life his parents had provided. I didn't think my parents really knew what they were doing. You know, I knew they loved me and I, I loved my parents. But they, they weren't providing direction. And I knew if I was an adult, I could probably do better. But as Les Wexner explained to Mary Jordan, the Washington Post reporter who interviewed him for the Academy of Achievement in early 2017, he never imagined 
that his better life would involve a career in retail. My mom and dad had a, a neighborhood store. Uh, I'd gone to law school. I really hated law school. In fact, I hated school generally. And um, my dad said, why don't you just hang around the store for a few months before you, you know, begin your life? And so I said, okay, what do you want? And he said, well, if you hang around for a few months, you'll learn how to open the store and close the store. And it was a little neighborhood store. It was like 15 feet wide. But that's that was the source of their income. And I uh, said, okay. And he said, because after Christmas, he said, your mom and I would like to go on a vacation. And he said, you know, we've never had one. He said, I've never asked you for anything, but I would trust you to open and close the store, take the money to the bank, you know, just do simple things. I said, okay. And they did take the week off in January. Columbus had a blizzard, and um, their, their vacation was driving from Columbus to Miami, spending three days in Miami, and then driving back. So that was their, their big vacation after a lifetime. And uh, kind of happenstance, had a blizzard in Columbus. I went to the store, and there was like I don't know, 18 inches of snow, so there was no traffic. And I felt very obligated to be there because I was kind of guarding the fort, and there was just nothing to do. No, there's gonna be no one's going to come to the store. And I got bored, so I was curious to see what categories of merchandise my dad and mom made money in. And I could sort out the invoices, and they kept track of sales by category of merchandise, shirts and pants and skirts. And I would look through the invoices to see, and I figured out that in what my dad called sportswear, uh, they were making substantial profits. And in the big ticket items, then dresses and coats, they were making no money. And when he came back from their vacation, he sat down in a Woolworths coffee shop and I gave him the big ta-da. And he said, it's impossible. He says, we make money on the big ticket items. They said, no, you, you, you see them as big tickets, but you're taking big markdowns and there's no profitability. And from that, we got into a very classic father-son argument. So you know, he'd say, you know, go get a job. You know, your mom and I have struggled our lives to, to have this small business, and we're going to run it the way we want to run it. And you don't know what you're talking about. And I said, Dad, but here's the numbers. They don't lie. At this point, Les Wexner was about 22. His parents, by the way, had named the store after him, Leslie's. But Les and his dad continued to knock heads over how it should be run. He'd throw me out of the store, say, go home, go find a job. I'd go pout for a week or two. My mom would make peace with my dad. I'd go back to the store. He'd throw me out. And I just, and, and as I looked back at it and didn't see it at the time, it was a classic father-son kind of argument about merit and manhood or value. And I was going I decided quite subconsciously that I was going to prove to my dad that I had real worth and I could do something. But the only language he understood was the business he was in. And so I thought his business was wrong. I'm going to do one that's right. And I invented one in my mind and began playing with it and making sketches of stores and fixtures and thinking about things that I might sell. And I had a spinster aunt. And uh, I don't think she knew what was going on in terms of what I was imagining. She just knew that my dad and I were, weren't getting along and I didn't have a job. And uh, my aunt Ida said, I've, I've got... Uh, $5,000, which was her whole net worth. And she said, I'll give you the $5,000, but you're 
but you have to put it in the bank and promise not to spend it. But banks will loan money to people that have money, I think. And she said, so if I give you the 5000 you put it in a savings account, and you have to promise never to spend it because that's all I have. And my parents couldn't have contributed. They, didn't, they had nil. And so I did, waited a couple of months and went to the neighborhood bank and I said, by the way, I'm thinking about starting a business. And the, the loan officer at the branch said, well, how much money do you have? And I said, well, I've got $5,000 in your bank. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I don't know. Would you make me a loan? And he says, well, if you have $5,000, i will loan you ten. But why don't you come up with an idea? That, oh. And your first idea was? <laughs> Open a store. And it was a pretty modest store. It was located between a dry cleaner and a supermarket in a neighborhood, not a shopping center. And you called it? The Limited. Because I had limited assets. <laughs> People thought it was a terrible name. They said, it sounds like a train. And when is the Limited leaving town? And I said, no, no. It's a, it's, it describes the assortment, and it's a romantic name. Do you think it was a good name in the end? Great name. I think it was, a, but there were people thought of it, maybe it had something to do with a British corporation. It was just, it was just kind of mysterious. When I was in middle school, growing up in New Jersey in the 1970s, the main attraction of a trip to the mall was going to the Limited. This was in the era before Gap, before J. Crew, before Banana Republic. I didn't know it at the time, but specialty chain stores were still a novel idea, and Les Wexner was leading the charge from his perch in the center of Ohio, determined to sell a limited number of items in a limitless way. I was so positive the first store would work uh, that a shopping center was announced in Columbus, the first shopping center. And I signed up for a store in that shopping center, so I had I leased the second store before the first store had opened. And uh, so at that point, I had a negative net worth of $5,000. But the lease liability, and the, if I would have paid for the inventory, and I knew what payroll. So I'd say, here you have two stores. You know, they happen in, in sequence. What's the total lease liability? What is it going to cost to finance an inventory? How many people would work in the store? And, you know, incidental expenses like lighting and plumbing, you know, taxes. I knew that when I'd committed for those two stores and the first one hadn't opened, that I was looking down the throat of a million dollars. Where did that confidence to take that risk come from? I don't know that it was confidence. I, I, I've, I didn't know anything. But so first I wanted to be just curious about how deep the pond I was getting into. So I said, oh my God. Uh, this is a million dollars, and I've got, I've levered the 5000 I borrowed from Aunt Ida. I said, well, maybe I could do $150,000 in business. Maybe I could get terms. I could actually sell the merchandise before I had to pay for it. You know, a lot of uh, optimistic guesses uh, of what, how it might work, and it worked a little bit better than I thought. So how is it that this guy from Ohio was able to know what young women wanted to buy. Well, he, I don't think he knew. I mean, I just, I, I didn't think about it that way. I, I knew the young women I knew, and I knew what kind of clothes they bought, so I thought I would just buy clothes like I thought they would, they would buy, and then they did. They bought lots of them, and he soon found himself with three and then four stores. 
but he thought four was all the market could bear in a city the size of Columbus. I said, but if you went to two cities, you could have eight stores. So that's, that was the, the, the kind of the amateur, the 27-year-old or 26-year-old talking to himself. And so I was just playing, he was just like scribbling on a napkin and saying, gee, is this, is, this is pretty interesting, but how do you get from one community, Columbus, if I'm going to get to a larger number of stores, I'd have to be in multiple cities. And everybody knew that people didn't have stores in multiple cities. And I said, well, you know, I could try it. So I thought, well, when we lived in Chicago, my dad would commute an hour from the north side to the south side to work every day. So it was an hour going and an hour coming. And I said, she was, I could open a store in Dayton. It's an hour to Dayton and an hour back. So I'll just commute to Dayton. And I told my dad I was going to do that. And he said, the merchants in Dayton will eat you alive. You've been, you're lucky to be successful in Columbus. I said, well, I think it's the same. And if the story doesn't work, I could afford one failure. And it worked. Okay, let's just pause here for a moment to consider what Les Wexner is talking about. Because we live in a world that is so dominated by chain stores, it can be hard to remember that someone came up with the idea. When Wexner started his own first store in 1963, Chicago shoppers bought their clothes at Marshall Fields. Baltimore shoppers went to Hecht's. Philadelphia had Wanamaker's. St. Louis had Famous Bar. Birmingham had Loverman's. And so on and so on. But I recognized, but probably intuitively couldn't articulate it, we had a, a merchandise plan, we had a store design, we had a name of our store. We had a lot of things that were replicable. And so if, if I could open a store and then I could open another one just like it, and then you could open another one in another city just like it, calling it leverage, you have a replicable model that's repeatable. And there's also financial leverage and, and human scale. So I recognize if I had four stores, then I'd probably have four assistant managers. Uh, those four assistant managers have career opportunities to become store managers if I open more stores. You know, if I'm picking a style for one store or a color, a garment, why couldn't I pick the same style for eight or 10 stores? You're just writing a bigger number. So what I try to uh, do is say, what is what I'm doing? Could I copy it? It's like McDonald's building a gold, more golden arches. Where did you get this idea? Did you see McDonald's and think they can do it, I can do it? Did you? Maybe. I don't remember specifically, but I remember thinking the characteristics of Milwaukee, Columbus, Dayton are similar. And then I went to the, an office supply store, got a map of the U.S., and got a compass and a, and a wax crayon, and I drew concentric circles out 200, 300, 400 miles. That compass is big enough now to cover not only Atlanta, New York, Seattle, San Francisco, but much of the world, from Shanghai to Lagos to Moscow. 3,700 stores, 88,000 employees, all going back to that one week in a snowstorm when Les Wexner figured out that the everyday clothes in his parents' tiny store were the most profitable. And nothing is worn every day more than undergarments. Which brings us finally to Victoria's Secret, the most full-figured part of Les Wexner's empire. 61.8% of the entire lingerie market belongs to Victoria's Secret. That's the statistic as I record this podcast. 
You might assume Wexner went into the women's lingerie biz because he's some sort of stereotypical, red-blooded, straight American man with an overactive imagination. And if you take him at his word, you'd be dead wrong. It's really just business. Sometimes he doesn't even bother to go to the famous Victoria's Secret fashion shows, which, by the way, Stephen Colbert once called the Super Bowl of underpants. So what was the appeal of lingerie to Les Wexner? Because nobody was in that business. Uh, the, the, the funny story I like telling, I was driving to Dayton to visit the store, and I was thinking about what other businesses I could start. So I said, well, I don't know anything about the shoe business. You know, half the people in the world are men, so maybe we could start a men's business. I'm a man. And I think men don't buy as much as women. And if, if our skill is in women and stores... Do we, and everything that women buy or wear, you know, and I, and I remember saying that every, all the women I know wear underwear most of the time. All of the women I know would like to wear lingerie all of the time. And I'm just driving, driving down the highway, laughing my butt off and thinking what a funny thought that is. And what, what does that mean? And I said, geez, uh, what's the difference between lingerie and underwear? Lingerie is emotional content. You know, men wear underwear, women wear underwear, but lingerie is, you know. And so I said, I, I wonder why no one's done that. So I spent about two or three years as I was traveling around in Europe, Asia, uh, department stores, specialty stores, and I said, can't find a lingerie shop. In my mind, I said, there must be this wonderful lingerie shop in Paris, or maybe in Zurich, or maybe in Berlin, or maybe in Vienna, or just, they don't exist. They, they, I said, wow. So I had this imagination that there's this wonderful lingerie store, except I can't find one in Paris. Then one day he was in San Francisco for the opening of another branch of the Limited. And about a block away, there's a small lingerie store. And the ladies in the store said, you have to go see it. It's really kind of interesting. And I went down there, and it was interesting. It was probably 800 square feet. And it was uh, kind of Victorian. So it was like velvet sofas and... Tiffany lampshades kind of a place. But it was interesting, and I just never had seen anything. And I called the owner up, found out who the owner was, and I called him. I said, gee, next time I'm in San Francisco, I'd like to meet you. And he said, well, what do you do? And I told him I had the store down the street. And he said, oh, I, I don't I, I don't want to meet you because if I, uh, you, you just want to understand my secrets. And, uh, you know, you, you'd probably want to start a business and put me out of business. I said, no, I'm just curious, which I was. And... Uh, about a year later, I get a phone call. It was Roy Raymond, the owner of Victoria's Secret, which was at the time a local chain of six stores and a catalog business. Sales of lingerie had been good, but the business was failing miserably. Les Wexner didn't know a thing about how bras were fitted or constructed, but if he knew one thing, it was how to run a business. So he bought Victoria's Secret for a million dollars, and somehow over the years, managed to turn sexy into mainstream fare at the mall. And what has been Victoria's biggest secret? I think probably it's the universal appeal of lingerie. Uh, I mean, we're selling the same things in Columbus, Ohio. At the same time, we're selling them on Bond Street in London, Fifth Avenue in New York, and uh, the Mall of the Emirates in Dubai, and in Hong Kong and in Shanghai is that the, the notion of sexuality, sensuality, how women feel about lingerie uh, 
it's just, it's, it's a universal thing. That's surprising to me, happily so. Les Wexner likes to say that he can't take credit for creating anything new. His talent was just getting there first. I don't, I don't think we've in, I've invented anything. You know, Henry Ford really didn't invent the car, and Steve Jobs didn't invent the cell phone. Uh, Shersell didn't invent the digital revolution, but he could adapt, put things together in creative ways. And I, I can remember being in, in the UK and reading a London newspaper, and they were saying that, Marks and Spencer's sold, I don't know, 80 or 90% of all the lingerie and underwear sold to women in all of England. And then the remarkable thing was that women of all ages, the most popular garment, single garment they sold was the thong. And I was like, gee, that's really interesting you know, about English women, about that that could be it. So I go, so maybe we should sell thongs. And so the ladies that were running Victoria's Secret said, oh, that's really trashy. And I said, let's try it and see. So I think in in what we do, there's a lot of let, let's try it and seize, uh, whether it's a new color or a new style. But we didn't we didn't invent cosmetics, we didn't invent lingerie, uh, and if you know the customer, then you can match the merchandise and then you can market it. The marketing is is kind of the icing, the the foundation is the cake. That's the merchandise, and then the question is, do the customers do they want cake or do they want cupcakes or donuts? What is it? The intriguing thing to me is that as I get older and older, staying in touch with what society young women want. And that is what Les Wexner loves about retail. It's like a riddle where the answer is different week to week. It's just wonderful because it's all about people. (laughs) And if you like accounting, you can do accounting. If you want to do money in banking, you can do money in banking. There's a tasteful part that comes in the selection of merchandise, store design, systems design. So everything, uh, all all aspects of business come together in retailing. And it's really tough because it's relentless. It's, we're not building jet engines. We're guessing what young women are going to want to buy next week and three months from now. And so the the fickle fickle fashion, the challenge of it is you have to be in the game every day because it's changing. We don't have a, a book of orders like GE does making jet engines. They design a new one every decade and the order book lasts for three years and they're managing to it. For 52 years and counting, Les Wexner has tirelessly followed cultural trends and predicted what would stick and what would not. He's also masterfully understood the life cycle of a business, choosing just the right time to plant, to grow, to harvest, and to turn over the bits. When he was the king of apparel with the limited, Lane Bryant and Abercrombie and Fitch all part of his dominion, he suddenly pulled up the stakes, to keep this metaphor going, switching to lingerie and beauty products. Those businesses earn billions of dollars per year. So what does success mean to Les Wexner these days? Well, I think success its, a, success is more about purpose, I think. Uh, I think that's what's really important. No, nobody remembers who sold the most togas in Rome. People sometimes ask about success, and they say, well, what's your legacy? And I said, I think it's really a dumb question. I, th- I think the question is, what am I doing now, and do I feel good about myself? Am I proud of myself? Uh, I went through started the business, the store was successful, and by the time I was 30 years old, I was several times a millionaire. And I, and I knew it, 
but I can remember as an example, it wasn't very important to me. And I remember saying to my, my administrative assistant, do I have any money? And she says, why do you ask? And I said, because I want to buy a car. She says, well, of course you have money. I'm, you know. So it, how I kept score was the growth of the business, but it wasn't about score in terms of how much money I was making. I felt good about what I was doing. I knew I was employing people. I was growing the business. It was just tons of fun. So it, uh, I, I, would, I think it was probably analogous to how an athlete would feel that just enjoys the sport. And the fact that you, can, you get paid just made it all the better. And the side benefit of all that pay is that it's enabled Wexner to give away a lot of money. He and his wife, Abigail, funded the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard's Kennedy School, the Center for the Arts at Ohio State, and the Institute for Pediatric Research in Columbus. Their foundation also supports fellowships for Jewish leadership in Israel and in the United States. Wexner devotes a lot of his time to his philanthropic pursuits, but even as he approaches 80, he's all in when it comes to running his businesses. Journalist Mary Jordan wanted to end her conversation with this retail giant by hearing his thoughts on the future of stores in the age of online shopping. Wexner began his answer with the long view of technology, explaining why he thinks the train actually had the biggest impact on retail by allowing goods to be shipped. And next in line was electricity, which allowed for lights and air conditioning and escalators. And so what's the future? What is this business? I mean, is everything going to end up online? I see today in the Wall Street Journal they're saying Amazon is going to take a no. run at the lingerie business. No, I think there's a humans are pack animals. You know, so in biblical times and you know, the, the great market cities in Europe or the United States, is that people want to be with other people. And in a way, the more that we're isolated, whether we're living on farms or only talking to our cell phone, the greater the need we have for group experience. And so, yeah, I think shopping goes in cycles where the stores are dull or maybe the marketplace isn't that interesting. But foundationally, just basically in human nature, we like to be with other people. So while people are saying that no one's going to go shopping because it's, it's just inconvenient and it's, it's not as easy as buying online, why are people going to concerts? Why are people going to museums? Why are they going to sporting events? I mean, why would you spend three or $5,000 for a ticket in the soup to go to a Super Bowl game when you can watch it at home for free? And, and, a, and a beer won't even cost a dollar. And, you know, it, it, it just... Or why do people go to restaurants between frozen food, food that's delivered, and microwave ovens? I mean, no one should ever go to a restaurant. Uh, it, it doesn't make any sense. You have to travel there... You know, it's it's uh, so ten years from now. It'll it'll be the same. The the question is what the shopping environment will be like. Will it be more like Disneyland? Will there be big screens, TVs? When you go to a shopping center, will there be water slides or will there will there be virtual reality? Uh, when you go to a shopping center, is it all fashion stores or is it health food stores, yoga yoga parlors, and I don't know, uh, Whole Foods? I read something interesting. We're talking about the great shopping streets in England in the 17th century. Was somebody figured out that calicos, 
that the kind of print and fabric which came from India were colorful, but if you couldn't see them, you wouldn't know about it. So the idea of putting merchandise in a window, so when people walk past your store, they could actually see things. Somebody invented that, and that changed shopping because people could actually go window shopping. It didn't exist. Shopping, you went to a shop, an office, if you would. You know, it's like in the Western movies when they, you go to the the, uh, the general store and I need a dress and I need a pound of coffee and somebody goes in the back room and brings it out. It's like uh, the idea of display, shopping, self-service, all those were inventions. I think technology is going to aid retail uh, much more dramatically than technology is just you buy it online. That's Les Wexner, the founder and CEO of L Brands, which includes Victoria's Secret and Bath and Body Works. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't subscribed, do it. In two weeks, we'll post our 50th episode, and we don't want you to miss it. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is what it takes from the Academy of Achievement. Funding for what it takes comes from the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks for listening.